0: And welcome back, or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined as always by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? You already know, Mr. Magnus, you're here, I'm here, to do what? To give the
1: people not only what they want, what they need.
0: Oh, man.
1: You need this. You need this podcast. Other people need this podcast in their life. If you haven't
0: shared, please share. And you know what, John? the people just got last week, or actually at this point, it's going to be a couple weeks ago, but they got something really special, which is a slice, a tidbit of the NAU Mike Smith tapes. They got part one of three. And, you know, our listeners, we got actually, I got a lot of feedback after part one, and they're like, this is wonderful. And it was, et cetera. They loved it. Well, part two and three, we are reserving for our scholar membership program, our running scholar program. If you want to get parts two and three, along with all sorts of courses, all sorts of good stuff, become part of the clubhouse where we go in depth on basically everything you could ever want in running. And when I say in depth, I mean, we go deep on everything. From physiology to psychology to strength training to breathing to everything, and then we and have... other
1: scholars are doing it too. Like we're not the yeah. experts here. Like we have one scholar who's really into breathing mechanics, who's kind of shown, shined the light, and shown me the way, and helped me go in a good, uh, fluent direction on the import of that. It's, so it's not just me and Steve.
0: It is other nerds. It, exactly, lots of good stuff. So if that sounds good, guess what? Join on in, and you know what? Because because we're you know we want people to come on board because we're more concerned about people getting the information than making money. <laughs> That's right. We we are offering a discount to go along with the Mike Smith tapes. Where if you sign up, guess what? You get ten dollars off your first month. $10 free. Take it. Yeah, that bumps it Whatever. down from twenty nine 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 to, or $29 to $19. Like
1: pennies on a dollar. Even if you just are only a member for that one month, just to get the Mike Smith tapes, part two and three, and that's it. And you check out, trust me, it's totally worth it. I mean, part two and three are what people consider to be, who have listened to the whole series, the best parts. So if you're blown away by part one, it just gets better.
0: All right. And you know, you can get that head on all over to the running scholar program, use the coupon code, go exclamation point. I believe that's what it is. That is the coupon code. Yes. We will have a link in the show notes as well on science of running. So check that out. Join. I don't know what you're doing. Like get on board. Like even if it's just to download the, the Mike Smith work for, and then get get off you know, it's worth it. Become but sign up again
1: in the clubhouse. Like, cause once you're in the yeah. clubhouse, you can't go. Like we have scholars like is my favorite thing to check daily. Cause there's always robust dialogue. Even this week we were talking about co-contractions and the import of that long isometric or extreme isometric holds in relation to co-contraction and why that's important. We had people talking about middle school training, how to train middle school runners without burning them out once they get to high school, right? So making it more games approach versus like this overly prescriptive training approach, but also graduating them into that mindset so they're good to go come high school. And it was several really uh, highly intelligent middle school age coaches coming and sharing that dialogue, as well as this deep dive into biomechanics. We've been going in about applied smile engine theory and how to make your running more elastic or reactive versus more muscle bound. I mean, these are just some of the, the many dialogues, or if high school coaches are having trouble, like, how do I, you know, bring this athlete back from an IT ban? Or how do I, you know, structure training with, you know, the, the common thing that we face in high school cross country, right? A league meet during the week, an invite on the weekend. How do I do that to, you know, help the athletes not get burnt out or toast or cooked? All these things are Um, asked, and then all these different solutions and perspectives are offered from other people. It is really your brainchild and trust that you don't have in your life.
0: Yes. So get on board. All right. So we're going to dive into this week's topic. I think it's another fun one. It's right up my my alley, my heart, talking about marathon training. But we're not going to talk about the big buckets. Instead, we are surveying the little things that can add up to big results so we're not going to talk about the long runs or the mileage or the big central key workouts we've covered that in
1: other podcasts we have that's right we have have, have gone gone on on. (laughs) and
0: and we have an entire course in the scholar program on marathon training where we you know i actually take you through um the full cycle of of one of the professional runners that i've worked with on the marathon so you get it all but yep. this time, what we're going to do is dive into those small things. And I want to start with perhaps one that is really neglected for marathon training that I think is essential, and that is pure speed development. Mm. Yeah. And, and Amen, Stephen, Preach. There's a simple reason that I start, if you look at all of my marathon training for all the elite athletes, women that I've coached who have gone on to top 10 at worlds, all that stuff. They almost always start with a simple, you know, dose of hill sprints. Is we need to be able to sprint. And in this case, I start with hill sprints because often it's a safe way to introduce speed training. What do we do? We find a, you know, moderate slant of a hill, not too steep. And we go sprint up it for like eight seconds and then take full recovery and repeat a few times. And the reason this is so vital is for a couple of reasons. A, it reminds our body how to recruit all of the muscle fibers we possess, essentially. Not all, but, you know, recruit a high percentage of them. Because if we do not recruit those muscle fibers, they are not trained. If we don't recruit them, our body says, you know what, why, why am I keeping this like connection from my brain to the nerve, to the muscle, like active and raring and ready to go to activate because like, we never use this fast twitch fiber. So what I want to do is remind my body, Hey, we can recruit you. And the reason for this is pretty simple is if you think of, Oh, how does this help in the marathon? A, it creates a little speed gap, which is important. But B, even during the marathon, what we know if you went back and listened to that that the episode we did on lactate, we know that all of our fibers, essentially they're the, just there's this network where we can either produce or consume lactate. And what happens is if we can train to recruit a bigger muscle muscle fiber pool, that we have more muscle fibers that can, rotate and do the work when we're heavily fatigued or rotate in and take up some of that that lactate or give off some of that lactate to then be used as a fuel, which is often what happens in fast-twitch fibers. As we say, oh, you know, the slow-twitch fiber over here is really fatiguing and running out of fuel. And your fast-twitch fiber during the marathon is sitting there and be like, yo, man, I haven't been activated yet. Like, I've got plenty of fuel here." So. I'll send, your, I'll send you some fuel your way. Like, don't worry about it. But we need to be able to have that, that, that access to that fiber pool in order to, uh, to utilize it.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, there, again, there's more benefits to this, friends. There's more benefits. Um, <laughs> I love the Zarkoski quote that a muscle fiber that is not fatigued is not trained. Because it's, it's true, right? And so if you don't fatigue a fiber it, in, a, in a certain way or direction, it won't be trained in that way and direction. And we have these muscle fibers that, you know, can pivot either way depending on training, right? So it comes back down to understanding that actually there's no such thing as speed, right? When Steve's talking about speed work, hill sprints, speed is an illusion. It doesn't exist. The only thing that's there is strength, And if we can wrap our head around that all forms of speed are just really highly coordinated or very rapid coordination expressions of strength, then it makes sense, right? And we always say, oh, your base should be strength. Correct. So your base should also include, your base work should also include speed, because that's a really rapid expression of strength. And we need to be strong in order to run fast, in order to run long. So, You know, a lot of people don't touch speed work or say, oh, I just need to work the slow titch aerobic capacity. And that's all we got to do in base training. You know, we kind of forget the import of strength. And so short hills are a great way to do that. Another way I like doing it is also just very simple, right? Stairs, uh, short stairs, like stadium stairs up to, again, 12 seconds work really well, as well as, you know, faster strides, anything faster than what is, your 3K pace for about 20 seconds, right? That works really well. Those are all very specific expressions and forms of strength that we call speed. And without that, the other cool thing is about that, why it's so important is we know too, it's also comes back to nutrition, right? A, a lot of what we do in training is nutrition based. So the reason for recovery runs, right, is to promote nutrition and rebuilding, so you go for this really really easy zone one recovery run, right? The Kenyan poli poli shuffle jog, you know Kipchoge running ten minute mile pace. Why? All he's trying to do is facilitate nutrition delivery into the tissues, and then also excrete waste products out of the tissues. That's it. That's the point. So you should be eating something that is high nutrient load before an hour or two before you go for your recovery run or shakeout run. Nutrition in the joint capsule, in the tendons and ligaments. Is a vascular. So blood cannot go in there and deliver the nutrients. So, how then does nutrients and waste, quote unquote, get exchanged in tendons and ligaments? Through load. It's when we do full range of motion of loading activity, which in sprinting is a fuller range of motion than slower running. So, that joint capsule in the knee, in the ankle, in the hip, where all those really important tendons and ligaments live they're going to get nutrition through loading and then it's understanding there's a big difference between central and peripheral fatigue and then when they combine for global fatigue right so like central fatigue is just neurological fatigue of the brain that should evaporate within literally minutes the peripheral fatigue is a f- fatigue most of us are more familiar with that's fatigue of things more outside right so like muscles so that muscle degradation or breakdown that was so common after a long run or, you know, uh, a hard strength training session or whatever, that takes a lot longer time horizon to repair and bounce back, right? Where minutes or hours, we're talking, you know, several days. And this is why, sort aside, why sprinters, right, will in championships run multiple rounds of the hundred on the same day. But what will they do in between rounds of the 100, Steve?
0: Well, what will they do between rounds of the 100? I They'll sleep. Know. They'll take a nap, right. right? They'll and take chill. a short
1: little nap, 30 minutes, right? Because yep. like n- napping, sleeping, yep. alleviates the central nervous system fatigue, as we that know. That is true. Yes. So that's why that's common practice in those circles. Because the 100 is purely a central nervous system fatiguing event. So when we think about it in those terms, it starts to make a lot more sense why we want to do this quote unquote strength or speed work year round. And from day one is because we need to deliver a lot of nutrients to the tendons and ligaments because that ache and that pain that you you have at the end of a marathon where like you start to feel like you're running in mud, that's actually dehydration of the joints occurring. But if you have well-nourished joints, and things that have a really high, you know, uh, vitality. Well, it's not going to be as severe, nor it's going to be as corrosive.
0: That's very true.
1: Science, man, so cool.
0: Science, science <laughs> is pretty cool when it validates it stuff. I know. So, so we've got okay. So we've got this idea on on the need of speed and all that stuff. I think, you know, that also goes along, which you touched on there, is this idea of strength training, um, which can benefit us in, again, multiple different ways for the athlete. A, I think one of the things that we often think of or often neglect when it comes to strength training is that it can help both muscle and tendon be prepared for the, the load that that happens. Because I think... so. All right, I'm going to go on a slight tangent, but I promise this applies, is that if you look at the research on marathon training and marathoning in, in the science field, often what is missing in that research is we have very little data and very little understanding of what, how things change um, when we're under extreme fatigue in those last couple of miles. There was a wonderful paper that came out, I, I think, just one or two years ago that looked at the impact of heavy fatigue on running economy, for example. And what it shows is that the running economy changes. So the most efficient runners at the beginning weren't necessarily the most efficient runners at the end. So, But we tend to measure running economy in a fresh state and say, hey, you're more efficient than you know, Joe over there. But fatigue exposes all of that. Why? Because as we get fatigued, those muscle tendon units, that ability to absorb force and then utilize it, all shifts and changes. And what strength training can often do is they can make you more efficient and more able to keep those mechanisms in place so that you can absorb force and then utilize it to utilize those spring-like capacities of your of your uh, limbs for example tendons muscles all that good stuff and uh, and keep that efficiency over over the long haul so that in the final few miles your running economy isn't plummeting because like fatigue is causing you to, not be able to utilize as much, like we'll call it free elastic energy, and instead rely more on just straight up muscle power to get you through, which then depletes your energy stores, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, strength training is actually a wonderful way to train those abilities up to give us more resilient tendons, muscles, etc. so that we can be more efficient over the long haul.
1: Mm, 100%. You know, we often have a Steve and I are talking offline, like a muscle-centric view of movement in regards to running and strength training. And so you have this idea of leg day and arm day in the weight room in this very fractioned, uh, what I like to call functional segregation um, worldview of how muscles work, right? When you just dissect the cadavers and you go, oh, this muscle moves this bone, so we're going to say that's all its function is. The truth is, right, it's actually functional integration. Things work in the body in a very um, need need to perform now basis, right? And so, like, let's think very simple about another tangent: muscle insertions and origins, right? Though we call things insertions and origins based on the anatomical uh, position that we have artificially created, but when we think about the importance of the glute medius right? In stance phase, the glute med is actually a stabilizer. And how does it do it? Well, if your glute med is quote unquote off or not active and counteracting the gravitational force or form of closure that happens with your um, bones of that stance leg, what happens is the stance leg pelvis shoots up as the swing side pelvis drops. That's not good. <laughs> we want a stable pelvis in gait, in running gait. Very important. So we often think about abduction of the hip or glute med as open chain when the leg is not in contact from the ground. So you see all these things like clamshells, lateral bandwalks, the abduction machine at the gym, right? We all know that. And so everyone does all these Jane Fonda things thinking, all right, I'm working hip abduction, so my glutes are stronger. But it's not functionally stronger because it's a functional segregated way to approach it hip abduction needs to happen when you're in a closed chain and that foot's on the ground. So, when that happens, it's actually what they call in, you know, anatomy, the quote-unquote inverse muscle action because of our orientation. But it's not the inverse muscle action. It's the muscle action. (laughs) So, (laughs) the insertion origin switches because what has to happen is that glute med from below has to pull down on the spine of the pelvis right what we call the spine or you know iliac crest if you will of the pelvis and that pulling down of the pelvis from the glute mead, the working as a lever will then indirectly lift the swinging side of the pelvis to be level but if it doesn't happen then you see that valgus knee that quote-unquote overpronation that we call, like we are like, oh, you're overproning. Let's put you in this shoe, and that will fix it. It's not going to fix it. It's a band-aid. Like the way I always like to think about over excessive tendency of overpronation is, imagine you're like you you have a someone cuts a severe cut in your hip, and now the blood is leaked all the way down. But you're wearing pants, so all you can see is the foot and the ankle and go, Oh, that foot and ankle are bloody. We need to bandage this up. This is not good because the pants on, you don't see actually the origin of the, the, the bleeding, right? The bleeding's up in the hip. It's not, it's just symptomatic down in the foot and ankle trying to course correct as best they can. So we put this big band aid called overpronation shoes on the feet thinking that's going to solve the issue. And it does provide some uh, artificial stability at an important point in the gait cycle of ground contact, but you haven't corrected the thing that the wound's still open. <laughs> the wound's still open. We need to address the wound. <laughs> so, you know, it's like just getting back to that reality. It's like, you know, after going on that tangent, it's like, once we understand what we're trying to accomplish, that changes the modality and expressions of exercises that we want in the weight room because muscles need to be stabilizers at the point of contact, especially leg muscles. So the joint angles don't move. The knee doesn't move. The hip doesn't move. The ankle doesn't move. And we get that stability. Then you can absorb, as Steve calls it, but there's no such thing as absorption of forces transfer. You can get that force transference of that leg coming down, going back into the stretchy materials that's the tendons of the leg to then elevate the leg again versus asking the muscle tissue to uh, power through with a late propulsive thrust.
0: All right. We nerd out. We nerd out. There we go. We down that's the rabbit do. hole, down the rabbit hole. Um, but this is, I think a really <laughs> important part because, you know, and, and in, in marathon training, we often negate this, but you know, I'm going to go ba- back to this. You know why the the OG, Arthur Lydiard had a the second block of his training? And what was it, so, Steve? What was it? <laughs> this was what I'll affectionately call the go spring up hills foundation, where you literally, there's some wonderful uh, videos on YouTube that show where you literally are just barely springing up and down hills. And the reason was pretty simple. This was literally saying, hey, we don't do strength training, but we're going to prepare the muscles, tendons, et cetera, to have this ability to, as you put it, transfer force. And that's what it was all about. So they had all these hill circuit circuits for weeks on weeks on weeks to develop this ability outside of the weight room.
1: Mm. Gosh, yeah. So smart when you look back at it, right? I mean... But yeah, we just gloss over and always go to that. They did hundred mile weeks for how long? Okay. That's all I got to
0: do. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And I think that's really important because often what we do is like Lydia Dim left lift weight with his guys and that's fine. But what he did is he, he found a way to get the, that, that benefit or the need by springing up and down the hills and and then also adding pure sprinting into that as, as well and running, you, I should add part of these, these hill circuits were often running like at 800 meters, 800 downhill, really freaking fast. Like, you know, sub two minutes down a freaking hill. Now I want you to think about that in terms of the eccentric load on the muscle <laughs> and and think if you're getting some sort of adaptation, eccentrically that you may not, you know, get in other areas. Of course you are. So Lydiard is just, again, utilizing a different method to get some of these benefits so that his athletes can, you know, withstand the rigors of, you know, hard and long races.
1: Yeah. And that's an important thing to understand. Strength training and lifting weights are not synonymous. Lydiard's worldview was very much the bodybuilder concept of strength training or lifting weights, where it's like leg day, arm day. So he's like, no, that's stupid. Why would you do that? Sarity, for example, around the same time had a more holistic worldview of strength training of we're lifting weights to create maximum tension. Like when I do an overhead press, his entire body is maximally tensed. in in the Russian literature, they call it hard style training. So the whole body is locked out and hard every joint, except for the shoulder and elbow joints, which are moving right now you see people who just think, Oh, overhead press is just for the arms. I'm just working the arms. Like, no, you guys, we've missed the point. We it's, it's monkey see monkey do, but monkey see monkey do not right. It's <laughs> like, yeah, the barbell is moving overhead up and down. Sure. But that's not the point of the activity. The point of the activity is creating different amounts of load as that barbell moves up and down. And yes, the, the, The upper limb musculature will go concentric and eccentric, but it's also creating and sustaining stabilization in the abs, in the knees, in the ankles, in the hips, and the muscles that stabilize those as that variable movement of load happens through what we call up and down motion. So it's a very sophisticated understanding of what we're doing. And if you just look at it from this reductionist Frankenstein viewpoint of well, squats. I'm gonna be if I do. If my runners do a lot of squat, they're gonna be quad dominant. It's like, no, where squats are really important. Why? Because again, if you go through a full range of motion to like a parallel squat, or even if you quote unquote cheat and use the incline boards, which are God's gifts as squatting, um, for our purposes as runners, like I got that from Alan Bishop, man. He you, you see Alan Bishop, University of Houston, like he has those squat wedges that he uses with people because. People with longer limbs and femurs can't go down to, you know, a deep ass to grass squat or even parallel. They have troubles that alleviates that because what we want is, again, we want that full range of motion in the joint capsule of the hip and the knee to provide nutrition. So when we start to realize strength training isn't just about getting that muscle tissue hypertrophied or big, strength training also has a nutrition element, a coordination element, A contractile element, you go, oh, strength training is really important. (laughs) And that's why it's like squat every day. But if your only worldview of squatting every day is bar on the back, face red, I got to go max, max, max. Or if it's just I'm only doing this for quote unquote local muscle endurance and doing, you know, 10 sets of 30 with low weight, you've really pigeonheld the value
0: of strength training. Yes. Uh, absolutely. So, all right. So let's go into we've we've covered the speed, the strength side. One thing that I think really you know is worth covering that we haven't yet is this idea of, of fueling. Oh my gosh, that's what I always
1: tell like people I work with on the marathon. I go, if you're serious about marathon, step one is
0: nutrition. Yeah, you 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 got to <laughs> step nail this. one. Yeah, I mean, if you
1: don't nail it, it's like. You're just making yourself tired.
0: Yeah. So so the nutrition piece is really really easy but tough on the on the, on the long stuff, which is essentially yeah. you're playing a game. So here's here's the science behind this. We never actually run out of glycogen. Okay. That's nope. number one. We don't. Because if we did, we'd be screwed. <laughs> like your central governor won't let like, it. Your brain loves yeah. glycogen. It's like, uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. So it we're we're shut you down way before that. So that's what, that's what happens is that we shut ourselves down. So those fatigue, those initial like sensations, you have a fatigue that spiral into doubt, whatever, that's just your, your brain saying, Hey, we are projecting where this is going and our rate of glycogen is burning, burning, burning. So we're going to slow you down before you get to that point. So initially it starts by just kind of what I call nudging which is trying to get you to voluntarily do the thing. So it's like, hey, this is sucking. Like you're, you're, you're on the way to running out of fuel. So I'm going to make this hurt a little bit more so that maybe you slow down to slow our burn down. Great. Right. Now, if that doesn't work, eventually what your brain does is say, hey, I'm going to stop nudging and I'm going to start shoving, which <laughs> means like, hey, you're not listening I'm trying to make this hurt as much as possible. So I'm just going to shut things down. So you start to see like muscle fibers and muscles like stop working how they should. Why? Because your brain's like, yeah, that that neural signal going to the muscle. Ah, no, no, stop that. Like we're we're not working. So you just stop. And eventually that's what happens where we quote, unquote, hit the wall, we're not actually out of fuel as our brain just saying, hey, hey, you idiot, you're going to run out of fuel pretty soon or put us in a a place of actual danger. So I'm going to make you hit the wall. You're done. Well, this is where the nutrition comes into uh, specifically what I'll talk about right now is fueling during the race, where we look at what we're doing is we're essentially kind of tricking our brain a little bit. We're tricking our brain and providing some fuel. But we're providing a little fuel that says, hey, it's like a a pit stop of gas where we get a little bit more in the tank where our body goes, oh yeah, we can utilize this. And it does, it absolutely utilizes it. But the other thing it does is it says, your brain goes, oh, okay. Like we're getting some more fuel coming in. Like, we're going to be okay. Like, more fuel is coming in. Like, I don't have to worry about later on. And one of the reasons we know this is that there's some wonderful research that shows that if instead of swallowing your Gatorade or your sugar drink, whatever it is, is if you swish it around in your mouth and spit it out so that you don't get any of the actual fuel, it still improves your performance. Why? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because your brain goes it has sensors in your mouth and it says like oh hey hey fuel's on the way yeah. <laughs> like take the reins off like don't 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 be as dangerous or don't have the governor come in it quite quite as much like we're okay so the reins come off a little bit until your brain realizes oh crap we don't have fuel coming like sound the alarm again and i think this is this wonderful kind of um, dance that, that our fueling system plays. And if you understand it, then you understand how important it is to keep that fuel going in the middle of the marathon. And then also how important it is even to sometimes trick your brain into thinking like, Hey, we've got more fuel going. Like I'll often tell my elite athletes, I say, Hey, if your stomach can't handle any more fuel, like swish it around in your mouth. Like mm. that's better than nothing, or but like, like gummy in these just, games,
1: yeah, yeah. Or put gummy bears or gummy gels bears. and just let them
0: just sit in the
1: mouth. Ma- sit,
0: yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Exactly, and I think this is where fueling is so important. And the other thing that I'll say on fueling is say, well, okay, I got it, I got it. Drink, drink some sugar, take some gels, all that good stuff, whatever it is. Well, the the other thing that people often miss out is is that our gut can be trained just like our muscles.
1: Oh, yeah. I love that, like, you know, just quick aside that uh, one of the Hanson's brothers, I think Keith relating, like, how Desi, when they were still working together, was training for a marathon using a certain type of, uh, you know, uh, fuel, uh, liquid fuel, liquid you know carbohydrate and at first her stomach was just not accepting the medicine and you know he was trying to be all nice like, oh well hey we can try some something and then desi looks like no it has to fucking do it i'm gonna make it do it
0: <laughs> And i was like yes exactly i mean that's how it is i'll tell a quick quick story so when i was in high school um running a ton in the summers we'd have to run i we'd split our runs up as a team so i'd run like you know seven eight miles in the morning And it's the Houston summer. So you couldn't run again until like, you know, eight o'clock at night. After dinner. (laughs) That's right. So it's after dinner. So me and my teammates, we'd meet for evening runs. And at first we were like, this sucks. Like we're eating dinner at like 930 at night and then having to get up at 630 the next morning to get a run in before it's miserable. So after a while, we just said, you know what? we're going to eat dinner beforehand. And what happened is we, because we were high school kids and dumb, but also accepted challenges is we would push our dinner to be as close to the run as possible. So we would have kids and myself included who it became this challenge. We'd be like, Hey man, like I ate dinner and then hopped in the car and drove 10 minutes to get to the park. So I I finished my dinner 10 minutes ago. And then people would be like, you know, hey, I didn't just have pasta. I had a full like, you know, 10 out steak and now I'm about to run. And and this is what would happen is that inevitably, if you tried to eat right before you ran, it would suck for about a week. But then over time, your body would adapt and you'd go from, hey, I can only run eight minute pace after, after a steak to I can run six minute pace. Now, of course, you wouldn't want to go run something hard, but the pace that you could run right after eating a full meal got faster and faster as your body adapted. The same thing occurs when we look at fueling is that initially, if you're not used to fueling while you run, your body can only process so much of that sugar. It only There's like a backload. It says, hey, wait a minute, we don't have a lot of blood flow going to the stomach. Like calm down here, and that's partially why you get GI issues. But if you keep doing that over and over and over and over again, what happens is your brain and your body goes, Okay, we're gonna we're gonna give the resources to expand our, our capacities. Think of it as the uh, the highway, the the city saying, Okay, we're gonna move this from a one lane road to two lanes to three lanes because we can see the congestion that's happening. Your body does the same thing. So one thing I would challenge those listening is if you're getting ready for a marathon, is experiment and, and push that fuel a little bit on how much you can consume during a run because just like your body adapts to the physical stressors, it will adapt to the physical you know, barrier of how much can we consume in terms of sugar, fuel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Yeah, believe it or not, everyone alive today... Is the best incarnation version of human uh, organism ever. Why? Because we're here. We adapted, we survived. (laughs) So we got to remember, we are, our processes and the way we can interpret and do things is the best evolutionary version of millions and billions of years of this, right? So, and that's one thing about the human condition. We are hardwired to endure and we're hardwired to adapt. And it's actually, some things are very rapid. It's not as rapid as we might like, but in general, the capacity to evolve and adapt in a lot of different areas is very rapid, provide you subject yourself to the stimulus <laughs> and then you provide you also give yourself time to rebuild and interpret and adapt to the stimulus. Getting back to the fueling thing, like that's also a key thing is remember in the moment, glycogen is key because since our brain runs on glycogen, your brain is tasked with essentially keeping us alive. So that's all it really cares about. It's all it really gives a shit about. It's like, <laughs> honestly, it does it does not care what your marathon time is, what your pace is, what your place is. It's just like, I want to stay alive. <laughs> and so if you can do things like the swishing of the carbohydrate or electrolyte fluid, sugar fluid in your mouth, or letting sugar, um uh capsule or gel or block or something just sit in your mouth cuz the quickest way into the bloodstream and the quickest uh delivery mechanism into the bloodstream is where steve
0: I have no idea under the tongue right oh there you go
1: yeah so it's that's if you just let it dissolve right there it gets right into the bloodstream right that's why it's really you know having any kind of like Uh, Dental infection is really a severe thing because they're like, "Uh oh, that's going to go in the bloodstream and then that's corrode the whole body. So we don't want those microbes to get out, right? Um, Because the mouth is really important in those regards. So, yeah, if you just let things sit on and dissolve in the gum line, that entryway from the gums into the bloodstream is very, very quick. So I always tell people, yeah. Gum, that's why you'll see it in the marathon too they'll have all these gummies and you know goos and gels especially in the last 10k available at aid stations because they know like that's what your brain need wants most is that reassurance that glycogen is on the way or there and the best thing to think about with glycogen as related well to the brain doing a marathon is and using the car analogy is at about three quarters of a tank your economy starts to plummet. And that's, I mean, and so we 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 call it, oh, I hit the wall. It's like, no, this is such a sensitive mechanism. Like imagine if you're driving your car and like you need to put gas in before you get to three quarters, right? There's a lot of quote unquote pit stops because it's such a sensitive mechanism that it wants that security and predictability and that assurance that we have enough to at least like survive. And that's the thing we have to always think about too when Steve, you were talking about the micro predictions the brain makes is That is it. Another component of human nature is we love predictive capacity. Why? Because it creates stability. So we are all we're predicting machines at a micro nanosecond level and also at a macro weeks, day, month, years level. Right. And so anything that gives us this predictive stability is something that Mother Nature validates and wants us to do. So our job, right, as athletes and coaches is never to fight Mother Nature. It's always to understand her. And if we understand her, we can then work with her versus when we don't understand her or ignore her and work against her, we will always lose. We will always lose when we try to go up against Mother Nature. It does not matter.
0: <laughs> and, and, you know, this is why I think understanding the, the physiology is really important. So, for example, on the Mother Nature thing, well, we never have one path or one route. And this even applies to this problem of fueling. Oh, yeah. We were just
1: talking about this offline. Yes.
0: Yeah. Research shows that like if you mix your sugar types, such as like fructose and glucose or whatever Mm -hmm. have you, Mm -hmm. is that they they have different limiting factors or, or barriers that kind of slow them down. And if you mix them together in your drink or have a drink that's mixed with different sugar types, what happens is you're able to get more into the gut and be processed because they go through slightly different mechanisms of breakdown and fueling and all that stuff to utilize it. So this is another example that is great of like, well, this is why the type of drink often matters or the type of gel often matters or the source of your your sugar matters, because again, you can kind of take advantage of these kind of, we'll say, a, a well-functioning quirks of biology that yeah. make sure that we have multiple paths towards getting the fuel that we need.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's why like chocolate milk is such a good quote unquote recovery aid, right? Because it has both sucrose and fructose in it, as well as like fat and protein and macros, right? But that allows this replenishment to happen much more rapidly. And that's why some of the like, you know, things like uh, drinks out there like Morton or whatever have this combination of different sugar profiles is to accelerate that. And that also, yeah, we have to remember like Mother Nature, she she loves redundancies and she loves, um, you know, uh, variability or adaptability you know, or flexibility, right? So she's going to give us multiple ways to get things done. And we can just go one direction. But if we combine them, that combination then amplifies. And so that's always the thing is when we understand science, and what it's telling us, then, you know, heuristics that like work are important. um, Like this, like, yeah, you know, have a glass of milk, right? Like, this actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Milk's not the devil. It's not bad. I mean, obviously, some people, some people
0: it is. The lactose intolerance, I get it, but it can be valuable. That is true. That is true. <laughs> and I think this is why it's super important to understand, again, the physiology, and the science, et cetera, because it can point you in the right direction um, on these things. Okay. The other so, thing. Oh. Uh, yep. Uh, no, go for it. it.
1: All right. So then the the next thing is the importance of massage therapy cannot Mm. relate the importance of this enough. It's often very much overlooked and seen as a luxury. But if you're training for a marathon, I really don't care how good, quote unquote, you are (laughs) in terms of how fast you are, what corral you're in, whatever. If you're subjecting your body to this regular habitual breakdown of long runs, long workouts, mileage, even speed or strength work, regular massage is a freaking game changer. And I always go back to the Vladimir Kuntz example, who was actually, um, it was a story relayed by Al Lawrence, University of Houston, 10K uh, school record holder fame from Australia that Brian Brazza, Steve Magnus coach runner broke many years, several years ago. He said, yeah, I was observing and talking to Vladimir Kuntz's masseur. And his masseur said, yeah, Vladimir Kuntz would train twice a day, quote-unquote high intensity, right, flux training. And what do you do after each <laughs> training? He would get a massage after each training session. So this guy was getting two training sessions hmm. in a day with two massage sessions in a day. And yet we we're out here saying the science in the paper, this is one thing where the science has not had the capacity to really inspect what's going on to validate, but everyone knows massage is an invaluable tool and works. So massage, you got to get it.
0: Yeah, this is, this is fascinating. You know, some of the most interesting work I've ever seen on this was, uh, done in part by Marius Backen, who was mm. the, the world-class Norwegian 5k runner who spent some time at York high school, actually in the U S, um, who ran thirteen oh something and then really inspired the Norwegian uh, Ingerbrigtsen training model. Like he was the one who that where their foundation came from. And this was years ago. And there was some interesting research where he essentially said, like, you know, massage changes the tension in the muscle. And we we often think of like tension in the muscle is maybe bad or good or whatever have you. But the way I like to think of it is, have you ever shown up to a race and you're like, okay, I'm rested, I'm rested, and then you just feel flat, right? You're just like, what the heck, man? I'm getting like no responsiveness. I feel like I'm sinking into the ground. That's because your muscle tension is so low that there's no kind of um, tension, elasticity in, in it, so it doesn't function properly. And then other races you show up and you're like, I'm springing off the ground. I feel great. Like, this is awesome. That's because your tension is optimal. And this is where I think with the the marathon, especially, is this plays in a big part is because we do so much volume, so much mileage, so much long stuff that really beats the hell out of us and makes us feel really flat. And one of the ways we can deal with that you know, consistently over the long term is massage, which brings us up out of that state, right, and puts us in a state where again, our muscles feel a little bit more springy, responsive, etc, etc. And that makes a big difference. So again, there's, there's an inkling of science starting to go in this area. But I think it's really important because like, at the highest level, you're beating the crap out of your body and you need something to bring it out of that, especially the muscles to bring it out of that so that you are in a better spot. And also,
1: too, I mean, I'm glad you brought up muscle tension. Um, you know, when we look at things like, say, the hamstring, right, and the importance of that muscle has in like transfer and conducting force in the gait cycle and stability, we often think, oh, when a muscle's tight in terms of it's shortened and it can't expand and loosen, that that's the bad thing. So we need to stretch tight muscles. And true, 100%. But when you look at that kind of like double cross syndrome or the chronic anterior um, pelvic tilt that people have, what happens here, right, is if we look at the pelvis, the pelvis is in tilted anteriorly, right? F- dumps forward. So you get this duck butt, as they call it. But what happens is that tilting stretches the hamstrings. Why? Because the hamstrings insert on the ischial uh, tuberosity of the pelvis on the backside. And that tilting forward of the pelvic spine elevates, lifts up that ischial tuberosity on the backside. So now the hamstring is in a chronically overstretched state, over lengthened state, along with the rectus abdominis on the front side, right? It looks like people have a really long torso from below the um, rib cage, you know, down towards their pubis bone or genital area, right? And so now you have two things that are overstretched that you're asking to be stabilizers, when you're in contact with the ground, that's not good. (laughs) It's not good at all. And so a lot of times that overstretching is a product of then other things being over tightened, right? So uh, the hip flexors are over tightened with that anterior pelvic tilt. So you need relief from that type of tension, in the rec fem, uh, and also the psoas and what have you. So it's really important. Like it's never about either or it's always about optimal. And when things are out of that optimal range, it gets, life gets real tough.
0: Yes, that's very true. That's, uh, that's a good way to put it. So massage is one of those great things that you can do to take care of that. Um, the one thing that I'd also add in here, which I'm going to call it a little thing, but I think it adds up, is intelligent racing or pacing. So this can be a deal breaker because... The marathon is all about riding that line of what you're capable of um and if you go too far in that in the wrong direction this is where you risk that that kind of blow up and i think having the self awareness to understand and find your right pacing and then more so nowadays we know in races especially the benefits of of drafting and then other things like running tangents etc over 26.2 miles all of that stuff adds up a ton. So the more you can dial in your ability to pace, run tangents, figure out how and when to optimally position yourself for drafting, think the Kipchoge sub two hour, you know, projects and why those worked, right? Like the more you can look at those little things and dial those in, the better you are going to be as an athlete. And I think Des Linden, who you mentioned earlier, is a great example of this. Is she made a career out of being just metronome, yeah, a metronome so in tune, which allowed her to place higher than in many races than athletes who, you know, I think, inarguably, maybe like a Shalane Flanagan had more "quote unquote" talent over the distance because she was going to execute what she was capable of on that day regardless of what anybody else did.
1: Yeah. It's the, the concept of the metronome, I think it's misappropriated as you need to be at this pace all the time um, when actually like a, a little bit of fluctuation has been shown to be pretty solid, but as long as the pulse and fluctuation isn't too highly variable. So what does this mean? Well, when we look at the body, there's certain things called rhythms and these rhythms, there's actually like joint coupling rhythms that are very interesting. So like the femur and pelvis have a rhythm together and if they couple, it creates this rhythm of extension in the hip, which is really valuable, right? So you look at this time and time again, frequency as we call it or cadence is actually just a rhythm. And if your body gets in tune with this kind of rhythm, because force, um, expression is all can be particles and waves so this gets in the physics of things and we won't go down that rabbit hole but essentially the metronome style of running allows this global body rhythm and this you know within this tolerance of this fluctuation of maybe like five ten seconds per mile so like you know if you're running six minute pace for one mile you can go and run 605 or 555 or what have you. I mean, these are just hypotheticals, but being able to fluctuate too also, again, when we think about nutrition and nourishment is we want to get loading in the tissues. So we want a little bit bigger joint range of motion, but then we also want to back off so we don't overdo it. So you can pulsate quite well in between paces. You don't have to say, I need to run six minute pace the entire way, no matter what. That actually is not the best strategy, but within a, a very narrow tolerance, it is. So by doing this, um, what ends up happening is we're able to again reserve this energy, reserve expenditure, reserve the what I call the "oh shit" alarm um, to go off later and later and later. Super shoes also help with this too, and that's why we're seeing people being able to run faster and faster and faster. We've talked about it many times the 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 exponential like cliff that people fall off when they hit the wall is coming later and later and later. So like the rate of deceleration is not quite as abrupt and not quite as accelerative in the final miles as it would be without them, which is a very valuable thing, but same situation here. It's saying, all right, if you can understand your body's rhythm and then stay disciplined by not getting quote unquote too excited by going out too fast beyond the scope of that, even though right. I got all the energy in the world coach in the first 10 miles You're setting yourself up for success later. So that's why they say the marathon is a thinking man or woman's game. It's a patient game. A lot can happen. And that's where you have to be disciplined early to reap the fruits and benefits like say a dead lizard has done multiple times late.
0: Yes. I I think that's a, a great nuance there is it's not necessarily being dead even, but it's like going with what your body is giving you at that moment. Yeah. And if we do that, we're going to be in a much better position.
1: Yeah. It's all about rhythm.
0: It, it is. It really is. <laughs> the marathon, you know, you know who else used to say that about every, especially the marathon, Tom Tellez, man. Mm-hmm. He'd be like, you'd be like, you got to feel the rhythm. If you don't feel the rhythm, I don't know what you're doing out here. You know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what it is. That's how it, how it goes. So Yeah, and
1: that's the hard part too with all the tech available to us. We start to abstract and forget about the rhythm because we're looking at this time on this watch as a feedback mechanism. And now it's a task you have to hit versus saying, look, this is my rhythm now. And you, like Frank Shorter, he's like, you'd run into bad patches, right? Where the rhythm was off. And like, oh yeah, I'd run into bad patches. But that was actually a fluctuation. Like you'd slow down a little bit reserve his energy, maybe take a, you know, deflated Coca-Cola um, as was the practice at the time, which really smart, caffeine, sugar. Um, and then he's like, then you turn a corner and all of a sudden you your energy would perk back up and you get back in your rhythm and you speed back up. Right. And that's really the what they were talking about uh, with that language, because that was the best language we had in that era. And everyone kind of implicitly understood that. But now we've kind of forgotten that because we're like, what does the time on the watch say? Or what does the you know, GPS say? We must all die on the cross to the GPS and the the, the pace. And it's like, I wish it were that simple. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
0: life would be a lot easier if it was that straightforward, right?
1: Yeah, well,
0: but it's true. And
1: it's then I think not- one thing we got to circle back on nutrition, Steve, is also touch on pre and post run workout nutrition. That's a key thing because like, you know, we're not going to give you specific nutrition advice, so to speak, but to understand that you need to go in to a long run or a session with adequate nutrition for delivery mechanisms to do their job, but also so important and probably the biggest thing I think people forget about is adequate nutrition, not just in the quote unquote magical window right after you do something, but the period of time uh, prolonged after that within that, even up to like, we know like four days, like 96 hours, right? Cause you have all these different enzyme enzymatic expressions and things that are happening. And if we can enhance all that stuff and with with the proper amount of like macro nutrition and micronutrition, what we call high nutrient loads, your body then rebuilds and repairs better. Um, we can't speed up recovery too. That's the key thing. Gotta remember there's no such thing as speeding up recovery uh, from something, right? We can only enhance the depth of recovery.
0: Yeah, so I think here it's it's pretty simple. Is that number one is we know from decades of research, like you gotta make sure the fuel is topped up going topped off going into the marathon. Full time old, mm-hmm. old school way was was uh, the the. The carb loading, which essentially was deplete and then eat a ton, what we now know is that still works. What we now know is if you're training at a high volume, you are already depleted. (laughs) Yes. So if so, this is where advice differs for often for amateurs and professionals or people training at a high level is the high level where we've already we're already in a depleted state, so we can just uh, start consuming lots of carbs, etc top things off um if not if you're an amateur who hasn't trained much and you're not depleted then still there's some evidence that shows that you might benefit from a little depletion before going into um kind of super compensating with the the carbohydrate load and then i think more importantly is is the post recovery which often it often includes you know not just after the marathon but after the hard training sessions is not only refueling in terms of carbohydrates, but recognizing the timeframes that even after a long, hard, you know, let's say simulation run where you're doing 12 miles or whatever worth of work at, at marathon pace, whatever it is with the long run, like it's not just you're refueled after one day. There's a, it takes time. So that's where you want to be very intelligent on making sure you're fueling up, so and not again going in another hard long session too quickly after that because you're just going to kind of deplete 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 until you're really depleted and the the other thing that really matters is it's not just carbohydrate relatively quickly after a marathon or after hard long sessions or the marathon it's making sure you accompany that with the stuff that supports muscles tendons etc which is protein, and all of that good stuff, which starts yeah. that repair process.
1: And collagen and vitamin C. Yeah. I cannot tell you how important vitamin C is as a binding agent to so many different nutrients and their efficacy in our tissue, in our body to be used. I mean, vitamin C is so critical. Um, yeah, just touching on the collagen, like Dr. Uh, Keith Barr has a lot of really good research on this that shows Collagen mixed with vitamin C as a supplement taken before you go do loading about an hour, 90 minutes. That's because that's the only way your tendons and ligaments can get fuel is through load, right? So, you know, expression in the joint capsules and tissues of of getting the fluids in and getting the fluids out because they're avascular. You can't get through the bloodstream. So this is why, again, a walk even is good loading on the joint tissue capsules. Um, but with that collagen and vitamin C mixture, whether it be supplement, whether it be through organic food, um, you know, mechanisms before. And that's where, again, a lot of people think it's only an after and it's only vascular and it's only the muscle tissue that we need to repair, which is part of the game. But again, that's why you'll see the, a lot of like elite trainings, um, uh, athletes and their training programs in the marathon, you, they'll go for like a long run or something. And then in the afternoon, they'll go for a walk. And you'd be like, why'd they go for a walk? This is one reason is nutrient delivery. Cause even going for a walk is considered zone one, right? The heart rate slightly elevated. So you're getting that nutrient delivery vascularly through the bloodstream to the vascular tissues. And then you're also getting nutrient delivery, a through the joint movement tissue so it isn't just go do your long run and workout and then sit down and don't move all day because we know like immobility right sitting is a chronic disease that we need to rectify <laughs> even that the research has come out shows you can work out for an hour or two hours but if you go sit for eight hours you basically negated the benefit of it the, the really important thing to consider as well
0: absolutely those are some great points i love keith barr's research on the tendons and collagen um my goodness. All right. So cool.
1: So cool about time to be alive. Yes.
0: All right. So there you go. There's a couple small things, little things that make a big difference. Strength training, sprinting, fueling, pacing, massage, nutrition before and after. And these are the things that often in a race like the marathon where anything and everything can go wrong. These often are the difference makers. So take them into consideration. See how you can implement them into your training or the training of your athletes that you coach. And to keep this conversation going or to hear more in
1: depth about what all these different ideas are, studies are, or applications, more practical applications are, we talk about this stuff literally every day in the Scarlet Clubhouse, literally every day. So if you have a question about it, I mean, people... Asking Steve and I questions in the clubhouse. Hey, you mentioned this in episode whatever. Can you expand on it a little bit more? Hey, you talked about this. Can you expand on it a little bit more? Or can you go in with that? That's where we do it. So if you have those questions, join the scholar program, get in the clubhouse. Never been a better time than now for $10 off your first month. Good until October 31st of 2022. And then the deal ends, folks. So I don't know why you're waiting. This is the time to do it.
0: Get on board. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening. We appreciate you and best of luck in your running and coaching.